Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Let me introduce Sharon um, to you this morning. So Sharon has been a former teacher of mine, a tutor, and uh, also a colleague in the work that I was doing before uh, I was working here at Vineyard 61. And uh, Sharon actually received a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge. And subsequent to that qualification, she held various research positions, I think, in the US and as well as in the UK, and both of those. So she has done the science, she knows the science, she's held those research positions, so she really is speaking to us today from a, a real position of, of experience in this, in this area. She's married to Conrad, who also is a scientist. I think they met in the lab. They did. It's a match made in heaven. They met in the lab, and uh, Conrad is uh, currently working on a really exciting project to do with, I'm going to get this so wrong, to do with 3D x-rays. Um, a new generation of 3, 3D x-raying, which is it's mind-blowing to me. So that's what he's currently doing, and they have two, two children. They live in Oxford. So, Sharon, it's a real privilege to have you with us. I'm so looking forward to what you have to say. Let's welcome uh, Sharon up to speak. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And it's really a delight to be here and to join you this morning. And welcome to those who are joining us on the live stream as well. It's a pleasure to speak to you too. And the question of science is something very close to my heart. As Mike has already said, I come from a scientific background. And our own kind of interaction with science probably varies from person to person. Maybe some of you here have studied a scientific subject at university, maybe some of you are working in that area, or maybe some of you have had kind of, you know, kind of maybe uh, contact with scientific updates through the news and through books that, that you see out there. And we've had, you know, people in the room, we've had lots of different points of contact with this subject. But perhaps one thing we can all agree on is that um, scientific endeavor is something that's held in very high esteem in, in the world that we live in, and perhaps rightly so. And um, the work of scientists and doctors and engineers has sent people into space. It has developed the internet, it has sequenced every gene in the human body, and has increased the length and the quality of human life through all kinds of medicines and treatments. And of course, we know all too well the role, the vital role of immunologists and medical professionals in helping us climb our way out of the COVID-19 pandemic, developing a vaccine in a, an extraordinary period of time. It should take normally 10 years to roll out a vaccine. And they did it in two. I mean, how extraordinary is that? And so in terms of scientific achievement, there's a, a lot to be thankful for. And I'm not here um, today to kind of denigrate science in any way, because 
As Mike already said, I am a, from a scientific background. I, um, I actually knew that I was wired as a scientist from my early teens. I decided I wanted to do a PhD as a teenager. Uh, I'd studied biochemistry at Bristol, uh, just, uh, well, a little bit down the M4. Um, I worked in pharmaceutical industry for one year as an intern and then did a PhD in brain imaging and spent another seven years doing postdoctoral research. And what's interesting about my story is that I arrived at university as an agnostic. I'm a Christian now, but back then I was agnostic. I didn't really know what I believed, to be honest, and probably I assumed this thing that we're discussing today, that science could answer pretty much everything that was important in life. And why is it that we love science so much? Or why is it that we hold it in such high esteem? And why are we not asking this same question of history or of the arts or a different humanities subjects? I don't know if you get the, the, the magazine The Week. Um, I get this every Friday. And it's got this little section that says what the scientists are saying, as if Scientists hold this kind of sense of authority. Um, if a scientist says it, it must be true. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Where does that whole idea come from? Well, I want to just spend a couple of minutes sharing where that comes from, and then show, show you why science actually can't answer every question that we have, even though it's fantastic, and I love uh, the scientific method and all of the things that it can uncover. You see, science is perceived as offering concrete proof of facts and objective evidence. Now, this doesn't come from nowhere. This comes from a particular view that, that kind of grew to prominence at the start of the 20th century, and it's called logical positivism. And basically, the idea behind this is that you can only really know something that you can test scientifically. If you can't test it scientifically, you can't really know it. A number of people were uh, in favor of this view. One such person was someone called Bertrand Russell. Russell, he was a philosopher in the uh, 20th century. And he said this, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. What science can't discover, mankind can't know. In other words, unless you can observe and verify something scientifically, it is meaningless. Now, that's an interesting view. But there are some problems with this view that unless you can prove something scientifically, it doesn't really mean anything in life. You see, how much is there in life that's useful that you can prove scientifically? Can you prove that you were sat in the cafe or bus or underground uh, an hour ago? Can you prove it in the sense that Bertrand Russell is meaning here? Well, not really. Can you prove that your family love you? Well, not in the sense that he's asking for empirical data that you can rely on. 
You see, when we just look at life in general, there's actually very little that you can concretely prove. And even, you know, science itself doesn't offer this kind of proof, funnily enough. It, it actually offers incremental steps forward, but it's rare to read a paper that says, we have proven that. Actually, some, anyone with intellectual humility will actually offer levels of certainty, or this data suggests that. But mindful that new technologies will come along, meaning that actually they have to reinterpret data sometimes. And actually, even the statements itself defining scientism are meaningless according to its own terms, because this is not provable scientifically, this very statement that is being made. And therefore, by Russell's own terms, it doesn't really mean anything. And so I would like to just spend a few minutes asking four different questions of science to try and show you why it can't answer all of life's questions and why we need to look elsewhere in order to have answers to those questions. And so the first question is this, can science tell us why science even works. You know, how is it that we can even do a scientific experiment? Well, this is not a scientific question. This is a philosophical question. You see, two things are needed for science to proceed, for science to be possible. Firstly, you need order in nature. If you remember back to when you were doing experiments at school or at university, if you set up a study, I don't know, at King's College in London, and you know you're onto something, and you decide, okay, we're going to go and repeat it in Manchester, and you set up everything exactly the same, what should you find? find the same results. It's so obvious, we don't even think about it, but there's an underlying order to the natural world without which you can't do science. Nothing is testable or repeatable. Well, where does that come from? What, where are the best explanations for where this underlying order in nature comes from? Is it, is it the view that says everything that has arisen as a result of kind of unguided, uh, slightly chaotic processes? Or is it that there is order in nature because there's an orderer behind it? Now, this was the view of a number of prominent scientists in the modern scientific revolution, people like Johannes Kepler, um, Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, they all were uh, theists. They actually um, believed in God, and it was their belief in God that caused them to press into nature and see what can we see there. And they expected order in nature because they believed in an orderer behind it. And the second thing you need for science to work is an ordered mind. You need a mind that's able to make sense of the natural world and kind of make sense of the data that you see in front of you. But where does this come from? And in what kind of universe does human rationality make most sense? Is it a, is it a, a kind of a, a universe in which there is just matter and time and chance? And that, yeah, human rationality and the human mind are sort of popped out at a certain point. 
Well, that's one way of looking at the world, but it would be kind of unexpected. Does it make more sense to say that actually the human mind sits more comfortably in a universe in which mind has been there from the beginning? You see, the opening verses of Genesis say, in the beginning, God. And Christians believe that God is a rational thinking being. And so mind and consciousness and rationality have been baked into the ingredients of the universe right from the start. And therefore, we have a mind capable of making sense of the world because God has a mind. And that's quite liberating as well because it means to be a thinker is actually part of what it means to be made by this God. It's not to take a step away from God. To use your mind is to be who God has made you to be. And therefore... We could actually make the case that it's only if God exists that you have the most persuasive grounds for why science is even possible in the first place. How is it that we've got in this mess that we think we need to choose between God and science? It's one or the other. No. God is the one who makes it possible. He's created this ordered world capable of being tested and repeated and tested, and he's given you a mind capable of making sense of that world. How extraordinary. But the question of why science even works is not a scientific question. It can't be answered by science. Everything we've just said is outside of that realm. We need philosophy, we need theology, we need other ways of looking at the world. And of course, some very smart people in the world believe in God and are philosophers and scientists. One such person is Richard Swinburne, who is an emeritus professor of philosophy at Oxford University. And he, make, he says what well, this point in this way. He says, look, I'm not postulating a God of the gaps, a God merely to explain the things that science has not yet explained. I am postulating a God to explain why science explains. I do not deny that science explains, but I postulate God to explain why. You see, many assume that science is incompatible with belief in God, but this is not the case. And this was my view when I arrived at Bristol University as an agnostic. I went uh, in my first week, I was invited to um, uh, what was known as Gorilla Christian. Um, and it was Freshers' Week. I think it was maybe Wednesday or Thursday of Freshers' Week. And I was in this hall, and there were, it was packed actually. Um, there were four Christians sitting in a row, and we could ask them any question that we wanted. And I um, put my hand up about halfway through the evening. I plucked up courage, and I, I asked the question um, Surely you can't believe in God and be um, a scientist at the same time? And I was given the answer that. Yes, you can. Um, these are actually different ways of looking at the world and choosing between God and science is a little bit like 
choosing between um, uh, the programming languages underneath Instagram and Kevin Systrom, its founder. If you try and make someone choose between those two things, you, you take one look at that and realize we don't actually need to choose. These are different ways of looking at Instagram. One is describing the underlying mechanisms. The other is describing the one who set it in motion, whose idea it was, and who continues to sustain it today. And trying to understand Instagram, just in terms of its programming languages, leaves you with a diminished view of Instagram, right? You need all of the different layers of explanation. And it's no different with God and science. There's so many different ways of looking at the world. And life and society wants to segment humans up into little slices and just look at them through one lens. But we know that life is richer than that. We are whole people. We cannot be reduced simply to molecules and chemical processes. There is more to it. And there, there are so many different ways of looking at the world. And together, these different kinds of explanation give us a more complete understanding of the world. Yes, there are these incredible natural processes that scientists discover, but that doesn't mean there isn't a God whose idea it was, who set it in motion, and who continues to uphold it today. There is no conflict. There are different ways of looking at the world, different levels of explanation. Now, the second question I'd like to ask of science is this. Can science answer our biggest, most fundamental questions? Well, not really, is the answer to, to that. Because even if all of the questions that we have in physics and chemistry and biology were answered, our most fundamental questions would still be unanswered. Now, one really obvious example of this could be the example of the Big Bang. Now, we know that the universe started 14 billion years ago um, by means of this incredible kind of explosion of matter which formed the universe that we now find ourselves in, in our solar system. And that tells us extraordinary things about how things got going. But what it doesn't tell us is, why on earth did it start in the first place? Why are we here? What is the purpose of our lives? Why is there something rather than nothing? No scientific study is going to give you the answer to those questions. But that doesn't mean they're not important. It means you need to look elsewhere for answers to questions like that. Why do I exist? What is the purpose of my life? Is this life all that there is? These are very important questions, but science won't help you. Or as Sir Peter Medawa um, put it, Nobel Prize winner in medicine and immunology, he said this, the existence of a limit to science is however made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as how did everything begin? What are we all here for? And what is the point of living? You see, scientifically speaking, if we look just to the scientific narrative, we are incredibly insignificant. 
We sit here this morning in Balham on a spinning mass of rock, metal, water, and gas that is around four and a half billion years old in a cosmos of around 14 billion years old. And Homo sapiens, if we accept the anthropological account, has been around for around 200,000 years. And that's the human race in general. And then one human life in that is even less significant. If we look just to those narratives, it's almost, what's the point? And yet we are drawn to this notion that our lives are significant. That even one human life is worth fighting for or rescuing or getting out of a war zone. We strive for our rights. We think about our careers. We look at what's best for our children. We house refugees. We live as though our lives mean something, even one life. Why is that? Could it be that we feel that our life means something because there is more to this world than simply scientific narratives, than simply physics and chemistry. Maybe we long for more because there is more. Could it be? You'll probably remember um, a couple of years back, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the moon landings that happened in, in July 1969. And you probably, we all remember the famous words of Neil Armstrong, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. What might be less well known is that he was accompanied by two of the people. One of them was Buzz Aldrin, and he was a Christian. And he, Buzz Aldrin, took communion with him to the moon in a rocket, and before they disembarked onto the moon, uh, uh, Aldrin asked for silence at NASA, back on Earth. Uh, Armstrong and his colleague are waiting quietly, and Aldrin takes communion. And there's a one-sixth gravity, by the way, on the moon, so the wine starts curling up the cup and kind of doing weird things. But he had silence in NASA, and he, asked, he, he remembers the blood of Jesus spilt for him, shed for him, the body of Jesus broken for him. That was the first thing that happened before that giant leap for mankind. And on the way back to Earth, uh, Aldrin again asked for silence in NASA, and he read out the words of Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind? that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them. You see, there is another narrative that sits alongside the scientific narrative. When we are confronted with the vastness of space, it can seem we are unbelievably insignificant. But if God exists, you are seen. Your life is seen. There is a God that sees you, that knows you even better than you know yourself. And he says, come to me. There's actually, it's better with me than without me. Come to me with your mind. You don't have to leave that behind and take some sort of religious lobotomy to be a follower of Jesus. 
What is man that you are mindful of him? There's a God that cares for you deeply. And he says, will you, will you come to me? The scientific account is not all that there is. Science can answer many questions, but it can't answer our biggest, most fundamental questions of all. And thirdly, science cannot answer the God question. You know, whether the question of whether or not God exists is really important, but we need to look beyond the scientific accounts for answers to this. Many people assume that faith is something that you do, against uh, something that you exercise against your better judgment, where you kind of will yourself to believe crazy, irrelevant things that have no bearing on life, where you dispense with logic, close your eyes, take a blind leap into the dark, and believe stupid things. Well, if we take the face value meaning of faith to be trust in something or someone, we see that everyone has faith in something. All of us, not just religious people, everyone. We entrust our things, ourselves to all kinds of things, to parents, to friends, to airplanes, to doctors, even to scientific theories. And we do so on the basis of whether there is evidence to justify our trust. We might trust a parent or a friend based on the lifetime of loyalty and love they have already shown us, or we might lack trust if they have let us down. But either way, the level of trust is based on the evidence to support it. And that is the kind of faith that we see in the New Testament. When people put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's not in the absence of evidence. It's in the presence of the evidence of this living, breathing, extraordinary God-man who lived a life like nobody else and who died somehow for us, who gave himself for us. And it was on the basis of evidence that people decided to follow Jesus. That's what it means to have faith. It means to take a good, hard look at the evidence and go where that evidence leads. Have you examined the evidence for yourself? Now, I know we don't have a living, breathing Jesus physically in front of us. He is with us through the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other conversation that we could talk about. But we have historical evidence. We have the manuscript evidence. The Bible can be trusted. We have evidence for the resurrection. And we have experiential evidence of what God is doing in the world today. You see, it is possible to be a person of faith and to be a thinker. Thinking people can be people of faith as well. And I put my trust in Jesus as a young adult on that kind of basis, that I took a good look at the evidence. I grilled actually a lot more Christians along the way and uh, got to the point where I, I realized that I had not all of my questions answered, but enough that it made sense. It made more sense with God than without him. Now, very briefly, because I think I'm probably coming to the end of my time here. Um, the fourth question, can science tell us if this life 
is all that there is. Science has succeeded in delaying death and in preventing early death in some cases. It has given us implants and biotechnology uh, that can make our bodies stronger and help us overcome weaknesses. But science is not able to reverse death. The death rate, the mortality rate is still 100%. Of course, there is the area of cryogenics. Some people have had their bodies frozen in the hope that one day they will be revived. There is a desire to live beyond the death of our physical bodies and come alive again. And we hope, some people hope that science will get us there. But what if this has already happened? What if somebody has already been to the grave and back and says that if we follow them, the same will be true of us? You see, this is what lies right at the heart of the Christian faith. Is a man who lived and died for our brokenness, for our waywardness, for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He defeated death. And he says, if you follow me, this will be true for you. But eternal life doesn't just wait till you die. It actually begins now. Eternal life is to know Jesus living in you. You see, Jesus has said this. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this? It might sound crazy to some of you. This might be a complete paradigm shift. But I want to leave you with this thought. You see, at the heart of being a good scientist is being open to new ideas. If you start out on a theory and you collect data and the data doesn't match your hypothesis, You've got to be open to the, the, the possibility that you had the complete wrong idea at the start. In order to be a good scientist, there needs to be that readiness and openness to say, I got it wrong, actually. I need to come back and rethink my starting framework. And I want to ask you this morning, as somebody who changed their mind, are you open to new ideas? Because if it's true that Jesus has risen from the dead and says, whoever follows him, the same will be true of them. This is not just a case of, that's nice for you. That's really nice. Good. You do that. It's either true for all of us or none of us. But for me, it changed everything. It changed my whole life. And the invitation is there for you, for the same life that I came to know. Thank you for listening. You can keep that. Sharon, thank you so much. Um, absolutely brilliant. So there have been a ton of questions that have come in from across the sites. And uh, are you ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you look very relaxed. Wrong phone. <laughs> so the first question is, you said that science and faith don't contradict, but what about evolution? Isn't this an instance of contradiction? Doesn't evolutionary theory make the idea of God or a so-called special creation unnecessary? 
Um, and within that, maybe you can comment briefly on young versus old earth. You talked about millions of years and thousands of years, yes. six-day creation. Yes. How does that work? Okay. Thank you so much for the question. Very important one. Um, lots that I could say, but I will try to, to summarize. Um, I, I, I did put forward a particular view there. It is true that Christians hold different views on this. Um, some, there are some Christians would take, who would take a, um, a more literal reading of, of Genesis and, and would perhaps believe in a, a young earth and um, that these events were more kind of cataclysmic and happened over a very short period of time. There's also a view um, called old earth creationism, which would uh, accept what um, cosmology tells us about the age of the universe and what geology tells us about the age of the earth, but that there are natural and supernatural processes involved in how kind of that, that life and biological life came to be. Um, and then there's the view um, evolutionary creationism, um, which is actually wanting to ask the question, uh, along with old earth creationism, what kind of genre is Genesis chapter one and two? And the, the, the sense, the consensus is that this is not a scientific document. This is actually describing the process of, uh, by which life came about, but not in a scientific way, not in a chronological way, more in a creative and poetic way about events that did happen, but not in a scientific account of how they happened. A bit like someone might write a poem about the Second World War. They're describing events that happened, but they're doing it in a creative way, and that's the kind of writing that Genesis is. And so if you hold that together, there's no reason why we need to throw out what cosmology and geology and anthropology tell us, because these are different layers and different ways of looking at the same process. One is describing mechanisms, the other is just describing actually not the how long ago or by what means, but the who of creation. You see, Genesis was written into a polytheistic culture where nature was seen as divine. And the author of Genesis is saying, no, nature isn't divine. There's one God who made everything. And nature itself is extraordinary, but it's not divine in and of itself. There's one God. And that's the purpose of this whole account. Um, and also to say that humans have a unique place in that created world, that they aren't just simply matter um, and that are this sort of this blip on the, on the landscape, that actually humans have significance, not so that they can please themselves and lord it over the created world and make a mess of it, which we are doing, but, but, um, but actually so that they can exercise responsibility and take care of this world. So humans have, a, uh, have inherent value and a particular place in that world. Okay, thank you. Great. So, related question. You spoke about humans. We can't, we can't talk about this topic without talking about Adam and Eve. And a few questions came through about Adam and Eve. Um, so, Adam and Eve, is this possibly a myth about the beginnings of consciousness rather than a historical account about the beginnings of the world? Thank you very much for that question. I would want to keep coming back to this point about there are different ways of describing the same thing, but just in, in different ways. Um, so um, in terms of the, the is this uh, the beginnings of consciousness, presumably you mean in humans, because I would argue that consciousness existed in the Trinity before anything material was made, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, conscious community of love that is complete in and of itself. Um, but, um, so again, 
you, because these are describing events that happen but not in a literal way, that still leaves open the, the, the reality that Adam and Eve were people that really existed. You don't, because if you uh, begin to accept some of the anthropological account, that doesn't automatically take you into the realm of myth. There could, there are, there could still be people, Adam and Eve, that, that walked the earth, that were part of that part of that process, part of that account. Obviously, there are different views out there. The anthropological data is actually getting narrower and narrower. It's getting, you know, the origins of, of Homo sapiens as being traced to smaller and smaller groups of people, suggesting that that kind of data set is becoming increasingly in agreement with, you know, biblical perspectives. A little bit like the Big Bang Theory, that the universe had a beginning. That's a, that's actually a recent scientific discovery agreeing with an ancient document saying, yeah, the universe actually had a beginning. So I think what I want to say is we don't need to be afraid of uh, what, you know, kind of experts in their field are telling us about kind of origins. Um, but I think what, what the author of Genesis is wanting to say is, firstly, that humans are not just dust. They are dust plus breath. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And by the way, the Hebrew word for being, the product of all of that is nephesh, which is the Hebrew word for soul. The product of all of that, of dust plus breath, is a living soul, which is who we are, but that's the whole person. Uh, and so the, the Genesis is trying to say we're more than just dust, and there's a, we have also inherent value that we're made in the image of God. Uh, the Genesis accounts were actually that the function of humans in, in the other creation stories was, was to supply the gods with food and to essentially be, be their slaves. And so human value was in their usefulness. But the author of Genesis is trying to say, actually, no, humans are valued for who they are. It then makes it extraordinary that God provides humanity with food as this counter to that, to say, look, I love you for who you are. I've created you out of choice because I want to give you life. And, um, and so humans have inherent value. It's quite a long answer. Sorry. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. So just two more questions. Maybe you can spend a uh, brief, uh, shorter time on the first one and then uh, not to that last answer, just in relation to the second question. Okay. Um, so the first, uh, first one, then we'll land on the second one, is you talked about the resurrection but aren't miracles, and perhaps particularly here the miracle of the resurrection, uh, in general a violation of the laws of nature? Yeah, thank you for that question. A very good one, and especially in the context of the scientific question that we're looking at. The first thing to say is that the laws of nature themselves are not fixed certainties. They are probabilistic. They describe what most likely will happen but not necessarily categorically what will 100% every time happen. So if I were to throw a ball out into the congregation here, the laws of nature would describe its transit across the room, and, um, and that would be really helpful. But that doesn't mean one of you can't reach out your hand and catch it and take it in a different direction. And, and actually, the laws of nature describe what normally happens, but that doesn't mean every once in a while something different 
can't, can't happen. And it's actually our knowledge of the laws of nature that enable us to recognize when that different thing happens. And actually, if God exists, if this kind of God exists, he will be capable of making a world with laws that science can measure, but also occasionally suspending those laws to do something extraordinary, and not because he's a God that meddles with nature, but a God that loves and cares and intervenes, and intervenes in extraordinary ways. Uh, regarding the resurrection, um, so my husband also has a similar story to me and became a, a Christian as a student at the age of 19 or 20. And for him with the resurrection, the kind of the most persuasive piece of evidence was like, what on earth was it that changed these um, followers of Jesus from scared, terrified people hiding away, fearful for their lives, into people who each one went on to die for what they believed and became just incredibly bold and um, just turned the world upside down. What was it that happened? Something big must have happened. And of course, seeing Jesus risen from the dead would be that thing. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. So la last question, actually um, related in part to, to that personal journey that you spoke of, Conrad, and you going on. So you mentioned you started your science journey as an agnostic. What were the steps from being a person of science to belief in God or becoming a Christian? What, what, what were the steps taken in between to, to make that change occur? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, so I... Um, after this guerrilla Christian event uh, in week one <laughs> of university life, um, I went on to, well, I had friends who were Christians that were living next door to me, uh, very close by. They were pretty uh, open and vocal about their beliefs. That was interesting for me to just listen to. I also asked them lots of questions. I ended up going to, like, seeker groups to uh, ask my questions. It was before the days of Alpha. That's, it was quite, quite a long time ago. Um, but um, I, I ended up going to groups where I could ask all kinds of questions. Um, and I also remember being invited by my friends to a carol service. And I, I remember listening to the music. Um, in, in, I was really moved, because I'd spent quite a lot of time playing in orchestras and things. And I knew what kind of dramatic music could be like, but there, I was just struck there was something else that was here. <laughs> it was, you know. Um, and so that was so moving. And, and that's the other thing I want to say, that you know, we've got all these sort of rational arguments, but there's also that, that deep sense of <clears throat> the emotional depth of a person. And, and there are things that can really move us. And for me, it was, it was music as well, and I, you know, uh, uh, um, probably the moment that I became a Christian, I, I might sound weird, but I don't know if I knew that I, that's the words that I had to it, but my friends had invited me to come and join them, um, uh, come to church with them, they, and they went on to a student group after the church service, and I said, no, I'm not going to come with you to church, I'm going to write a biochemistry essay. Um, but I will come and join you at the student group after church. And, and so they went to church. I wrote an essay. And then I got on my bike. And this is where, for me, even just saying it, it sounds weird. I got on my bike and I cycled to their church. Who does that? Like, who does that? And, and, but as I was cycling, I just had this extraordinary sense 
that I wasn't just cycling to this church in Bristol. I was going home. I was going home. And that was what was happening to me. And I think that was probably the moment that I became a Christian, although there wasn't really a moment. Uh, I had a lot of stress around exams. I was a bit of a workaholic. And I remember um, there being a few, a few points. And Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I think by the summer of my second year, I was a Christian. Um, so somewhere along that way, that happened. Thank you, Sharon. Can we, can we give Sharon a round of applause? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.